And we are super psyched to welcome our newest sponsor, Thunder Road Guitars. Thunder Road Guitars is the Pacific Northwest best source for premium, new, used, and vintage guitars, amplifiers, and pedals. Online or in their Seattle, that's West Seattle, or Portland stores. You'll find fantastic customer service and a terrific vibe. I know because I'm in there a lot. Grab a cup of coffee, swing on in, don't spill your coffee, and check it all out. And now if you use code TOURSTORIES10, you can get 10% off at thunderroadguitars.com. Yes, that's me playing guitar. Hello, big news from our friends over at DistroKid. They now have an app. This app works on iOS and Android, of course, and it's available in the Apple Store and Google Play Stores and all the stores where you buy apps. Go check it out. It's got a lot of cool features. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties. Awesome. You can withdraw from the app via push notifications. A little dangerous for me, but rad. Anyways, go check it out. It's all at distrokid.com app. And don't forget, you can still get 30% off your DistroKid account by going to distrokid.com VIP slash tour stories. Have a great one. We continue to celebrate our friends and partners over at Isotope, and we got some big news for you. The gold standard of audio repair, RX11, is coming in May. In the meantime, you can buy RX10 now on sale and get RX11 absolutely free when it's released. Tour Story listeners get 10% off by using code FRET10. That's F-R-E-T-1-0. All at isotope.com. That's I-Z-O-T-O-P-E dot com. Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening. I'd like to take a second to thank our sponsors, Isotope, makers of software and plugins for audio repair, mixing, and mastering. Here at Ruinous, we use Isotope from top to bottom in all of our podcast production. Check it out at isotope.com. That's I Z O T O P E.com. And for 10% off their software, enter code FRET10 at checkout. Enjoy the show. Yeah, I think, I think it's a good one because it, it revolves around being confronted with a brand new situation and a new group of people and having to live by your wits. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So. All right. I like that. Sounds survivally. What's your favorite Chick Corea record? Because I grew up in New Jersey in the 80s, my entry point to Chick Corea was the Chick Corea Electric Band. Yeah. And my dad was a recording engineer in New York City um, from... 1957 to about 1987 or, or so. And he worked for a while with GRP records, which is Dave Grusin and Larry Rosen's. And it's kind of that label that their music that they released was pretty schmaltzy, smooth jazz, or yeah. it kind of, it kind of evolved or devolved into, into that. So that was my first exposure to Chick Corea was um, the band that he had with Dave Weckl on drums Frank Bali on guitar, Eric Marienthal on saxophone, John Patitucci on bass, and Chicory on synthesizers. And for me, I was a huge synthesizer fanatic, and so I was like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. And then I just found a, a live show that was that band in 1987. I just posted it on Facebook, and it's it's kind of amazing and 
compared to watching footage of like Thelonious Monk playing at the Village Vanguard or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. This is like yeah. there's lots of like sartorial questionable <laughs> decisions and like there's the, the obligatory Zildjian tank top. Oh god. Um, but also like Weckl is playing some it looks like a syntax. Really? But it's a drum controller. I don't know if it's some repurposed thing. I've never seen it before. Um also, I bet he was wearing his Weckl shoes back then. I think that's Weckl drum shoe era. I'm sure it is. It yeah. seems. I mean, I don't know. I all I really know about Weckl is uh, is the hair, and he's kind of a shredder. Yeah, he is I mean, there's sort of like there's a weird thing about like those jazz guys in the '80s. They like are just technical monsters, but like the vibe is just so not what I'm used to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so the electric, the your electric band, Korea. But yeah, and so Chick's playing a KX5 uh, Yamaha strap-on keyboard, and mm-hmm. Weckl's playing. So they're all the whole band is at the front of the stage playing. I think the song's "Light Years." If that if, I mean, that might not be right, but okay. But yeah, so that's, that's, that's um, that was my introduction to Chick Korea, and then I've subsequently gone back. I don't know it extremely intimately, but I mean, the guy was just a force and freak of nature. Yeah. My introduction, which is no news to anyone, was Bitches Brew, of course. And whatever whatever Miles stuff he played on, once I discovered that, I kind of followed around. And then in the late 90s, I was recording a band with, or recording a record with my band, The Replicants, and we were all into ECM stuff and weirdo and some real weird music. And one record we were into was Space Jazz. Oh, what's that one? Chick Corea scores an L. Ron Hubbard book. Oh yeah, because he was he a, he was a Scientologist. I know I, I know definitely during that Electric Band era. But yeah, was he a Scientologist throughout his whole life, or do we know? I don't. Well, I don't know if we know, and you huh. know, I don't know if you can say if you leave. <laughs> I mean, it's easy to get incensed about Scientology, but then it's also easy to get incensed about any other kind of formalized religion. Right? Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> so, uh, and I listened to Space Jazz today and it's terrible. Oh, it's bad. Not good. But man, he went for it. He, yeah. There's a, there's a fearless go. quality to that guy. He's just like, I'm yeah. going to do this. And yeah. Speaking of Chick Korea on tour all the time, have you ever toured? Hey! I did. I have toured. I did, I, but I didn't really start touring until I was about about thirty. I mean, I did a little bit when I was in a band growing up in New Jersey. We did one tour in the uh, going from New Jersey, playing a few shows in the Midwest with Per Ubu, and then making our way to L.A. And then we were in L.A. for about two or three weeks, which is where our label was based at the time. This is nineteen ninety five. We had a show in L.A., show in Salt Lake City, and then we drove home. So it was like... <laughs> what band was this? This was called Lizard Music. And you were opening for Parubu? Uh, for three shows. We played at the patio in Indianapolis, the Elbow, Elbow Room in Chicago, and uh, First Ave, Minneapolis. That was your first tour? That was like the first, yeah, going out on tour and not knowing how to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> like no cell phone. <laughs> we would buy the map of the city we were going to on the way. 
I remember when we went to go record at Steve Albini's house. I knew his address, but when I was looking at the map, I didn't really understand the north and south distinction in Chicago. And, you know, 6,000 north versus 6,000 south is a very different part of town. And I remember looking and I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's the number. Uh, oh, OK, we're going to go there. And then we and then I was like, I don't think that's right, because <laughs> that was way south side where we were where I was intending to go. And then I was like, oh, north. OK, go on the other side. And then I moved to Chicago in 2000 and or no, 1998. And I started working at Soma Electronic Music Studios with John McIntyre. And then that's where I met Wilco guys. And one thing led to another. And then I was on the road with Wilco for since 2002. So almost 20 years. But right before that, I was uh, in Chicago. Do you know Matt Lux, the bass player? I've met him. Yeah. He's I one met of my... him at an isotope show. Yeah, I'm sure. We, he did a lot of work at the studio and we became close friends. And he did a tour with this guy, Nobukazu Takamura, who's a Japanese electronic music artist who was in the States on uh, Thrill Jockey Records. And they had booked a tour in the UK, February 2002. And he was trying to get a band together to go to do this two-week tour in the UK. And because of a whole bunch of other constraints, it was just they just needed a keyboard player slash guitar player and Matt on bass because they had a drummer, a mallet player, a singer, and... Um, Nobukazu Takamura. And so Matt's like, hey, Jorgensen, do you want to play keyboards on this Takamura tour? I was like, sure, that sounds like fun. And so he's like, okay, cool. I'm I'm going to get the music and find out what they want to do. And uh, probably two months before this all started, I started getting manila envelopes mailed to me with sheet music inside of it. And I'm not a sight reader by any means, but I can kind of figure it out. And also there's the records too. So it was sort of like I was triangulating what might be expected of me. <laughs> and Takamura is a very mercurial and uh, quiet personality. But a lot of his music is like the process isn't like him sitting at a piano and composing a piece of music. It's using computers and synthesizers and to get strange textures and unusual combinations of sounds. And I was like, yeah, I can do all sorts of laptop textures. They're like, no, we just need you to play like keyboards and maybe some guitar. I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> and so there was this one song in particular, it was called Machine's Dream. It was a waltz that was to me clearly improvised by presumably Takamura, played into the computer and there were some touchstone moments here and there, but I mean, it was really a, like, there was kind of a pitch center. And I got this, this sheet music and I was like, man, this is beyond my capability as a musician. Like, I don't, I don't even know where to start figuring out how to play this. My ability is here and this song is like way out. So I learned the rest of the songs. We fly to London to do our rehearsal. And I'm sure you've been in this position where you fly to England and you arrive in the morning and then you have a rehearsal that day, right? So you're oh, just yeah. exhausted. And now I'm meeting all these people, the tour manager, the sound guy, Takamura and the other, other musicians in the band. And we're like bleary eyed setting up our gear and trying to like stay awake and drink coffee. And 
I'm set up to the right of the drummer and then there's the drummer June and then Matt's on the other side and I was like Matt's too far away <laughs> I need somebody to be able to talk to during the show and stuff and so I was like okay I'm on my own I'm on my own out here scary and then um, Nobukazu Takamura is is uh, setting up in front of me and I don't know this guy I've never met him I've never talked to him and the whole time I'm like what is this guy going to be like and he has like a Nord with the Nord synthesizer I can't believe I can't remember what that's called Lead. the Nord lead yes I think it was like at the time it was the Nord lead three which was the which was like wow that's that's pretty advanced right and and then he brings this giant clamshell road case that looked like a drum case and had a hinge and it just like it just opens up and he pulls out a gigantic tangle of wires and like puts it on the table and starts plugging his guitar in there's like five cables coming off of his guitar he's got two laptops this is 2002 and then his partner singer is this wonderful woman named Aki and she was sort of the translator and front person for the show and she was kind of in charge of the rehearsal and so she would say okay we're gonna work on next song is uh, Falls Lake and so everybody gets their music and and then if anybody had a question like hey what do we I just wanted to know what we're gonna do here kind of iron some of that stuff out and we start playing it and we do the songs that I'm like mostly familiar with and then I, I was like I know the machine's dreams coming up I know it's you know we so we got one two three four five six songs seven songs into the rehearsal and it's going pretty well um, no feedback from mm-hmm. Takamura whether like it's going good or bad or anything so there's just it's inscrutable so I'm just like I think I'm doing the right thing because mm-hmm. no one's saying anything bad or mean and so eventually Aki's like now we play the song Machine's Dream and I said Aki Takamura I'm really this is really hard for me I, I cannot play what's on the page I've tried very hard but I'm just unable to play this as it is on the page and then Aki would translate to Takamura and then she's like now we play the song Machine's Dream (laughs) so I was like okay well I know it's in 3-4 and I know a couple of the touchstone moments and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna wing it the whole time. And so we go through the song and we stop playing and like I have no idea what they're talking about. And she's like, Okay, new arrangement. And the song also, I should say, the song is only about a minute and a half. It's very short. It's like it's a it's a brief song. She's like, New arrangement. We play the form twice. First time no vocal, second time with vocal. So it just doubled in length? So it just doubled in length. <laughs> And every time I play it, it's never the same. <laughs> and so uh, I was like, okay, so we do that. And uh, I'm so stressed and, out. But I wasn't being reprimanded. It wasn't like, you know, you've brought dishonor to this proceeding. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess that's okay. And then we played the song with the new form, new arrangement twice as long. Yeah. And then... We played that song every night on the whole run. I think it was the maybe 10 or 12 shows. And we also went to do a radio show at Maida Vale 
and I am I am still so curious to hear it. And I've looked, I've searched the BBC archives and you tried to it. find some recording of this, and I haven't. So I think it may just be sort of lost to the ether. But not only did I not know how to play the song, we had to play it twice every night and on the radio. <laughs> did did you have when I've faked my way through a song when I'm learning a song? Sometimes it is like, okay, it's at 145 BPM. Here it goes. And then I can't remember anything until, oh, there's that chord. Here comes the bridge. Right. You know, and then, okay, everyone's building. So we're getting close to the end now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've made, I've played songs like that on tours before where it's like, you know, for a couple of weeks. Did you have reference points within the performance or were you just like, <gasps> Well, there was a vocal, right? So there's a, so there is like a vocal and those, the, 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 the women who are playing those parts knew it perfectly. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were playing it accurately and I am this wild card. And it, it was, it was such a confusing moment because they had asked me to be part of this. And I was like this, I can't do this. And I think that it was okay that mm-hmm. I didn't know how to do it because that made it different and unique each night. And so there was a, a special quality to that rather than presenting this refined, rehearsed bit of music. Right. It's a sort of, it reminds me of the way that like Dylan seems to thrive on chaos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it kind of reminded me of that in a little bit of a way, in a little bit of a way. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, maybe I'll never know. But mm-hmm. to me, it seemed like Takamura was like, no, this is cool. Let's just roll with this. I mean, the the drummer and the, the mallet player and Aki, they know the form, but the texture underneath it all is just going to change and be unpredictable. And that maybe is the point. Right. I really love collaborating with people that has become one of my favorite parts of playing music especially during this lockdown quarantine moment and having sort of a slow motion improv where you send an idea and then somebody does something to it and then you go back and it's kind of like telephone exquisite corpse yeah but i could never come up with something as interesting as what somebody else would be inspired to do on on a recording like here's here's a track do Mm -hmm. whatever you want you know, like, here's the general idea. You just go nuts. Um, I just, I did a version of uh, Joni Mitchell's River with some friends of mine. We t- sort of took it apart and in a respectful but creative kind of way. Mm-hmm. And uh, my friend Jamie Drake uh, was singing on it. And at first she did like a, a vocal version where it was just the verbatim kind of Joni phrasing. And I was like, try to, I don't I know it's maybe a hard question or a hard thing to do, but can you do this in a different way. Try to divorce the Joni version from your practice and just go and do something you're interested in. And she came back with this incredible vocal performance and like triple tracked. And, and it's just, I would never be, I would never have made those decisions, but they were the best ones. So staying away from it, (laughs) getting out of the way of other people being creative more often than not yields good results. And maybe that's what Takamura was after 
but it was never explicit. It was never, right. it was never like, Hey, that's, this is really cool. I think this is great. It was just like, okay, we've played the song today. Yeah. And then I, moving on. I love it. It's just, it was one of those, one of those moments where you sort of learn something about playing music and about creativity mm-hmm. in the moment. And you're just, you know, uh, when you're, when you're hired to do a job, you want to, you want to do the best job you can. Sure. And sometimes not being prepared is the right thing to do. And it's a weird, that's a strange situation to find yourself in. But yeah, I, I don't know about you, but improvisation has become the way for me in, in being, and in, in being, a, I guess, a writer of music. There's so much power and important lessons in improvisation where you just need to just get out of the way. Yeah. Like your brain is, your brain sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not your brain, but your intention, your intentions might suck. Nothing makes me feel better playing music right now in my life than improvising. And it, my, my parameters are in a, in a rock category, you know, mm-hmm. but still I like to step way, way out. And it's, there's nothing that makes me feel better. I agree. It feels infinite. I mean, it, yeah. like the, the older I get, you feel, I think that maybe there was a misconception on my part where like, oh, I'm, I'm gonna, as I get older, I'm going to, I'm going to learn all the things that I'm going to need to know. And then at some point the, what I don't know is going to get smaller, right? Mm-hmm. The, the amount of information that I don't have will become smaller, but it actually is the opposite. Like as you get older, you're like, oh wow, jazz is really hard. Like, <laughs> yeah. It is. Yeah an Olympic sport. I yeah. mean, it is, it's the best. It's just it the best. And it's just music. It's not like you're a neurosurgeon where someone's family and life is on the line. It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like why, why is there so much fear right. imbued in this? Like there's the stuff you don't know, but that's fine. I mean, you'll right. never, you'll never know everything. I mean, I feel like I've, you know, I've built up this skill set and sensibility and then there's like everything else and you kind of like you kind of tunnel across to the other parts of the of music that you want to learn about and 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 for me it's 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 being in the studio and creating mm-hmm. creating moments and i love playing live but there's something there's something really special about being in the studio and um and creating something that will kind of persist yeah because we're all sort of working somewhat isolated and remotely, it's given me the time to make a giant mess. You know, somebody sends me a song or like the, and with Wilco, Jeff's been writing a bunch and sending us little demos and I'll just put it into the computer and I'll play along, figure out the chord structure and then, and sort of think about like, what is this song? Like, what are these, what is this lyric about? And and ha- and approach it in a way that's very different than if we're all in the same room together. Like it's a very, there's an intimacy of that process that is very different than when you're in an ensemble. Right. Um, but I, I really love the freedom to just make a huge, ugly, stinky pile of crap and then refine it, you know, and it always takes time, but man, it is, it's so gratifying. I, I yeah. just absolutely love it. <laughs> What do you think you're going to not take for granted or it's going to be harder to take for granted 
once things get back to normal. Going out to eat in good restaurants on tour. I think that's the number one answer. And I also, um, I, I quit drinking 2016. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I necessarily had a problem, but I do miss an exquisite glass of wine with a good meal in yeah. Zurich or something. Right. Um, that and and then just going to see to see more art when we're out in out and about. What's your favorite? What's one of your favorite places that comes to the top of your head as soon as someone's like, "What's your favorite place on tour?" Melbourne. Melbourne. Melbourne is like the food, the food capital of Australia. Yeah, clay pots. Clay pots. Go there. It's one Next of the time. best restaurants ever. Yeah. It's been a while since we were in Australia. It might be one of the first places you go back to. It's true. I mean, we there were dates booked for this month mm. in Australia back. I mean, I guess it was maybe booked a year ago or something. But, yeah. And I looked at the calendar and I was like, I asked our tour manager, I was like, you think this is going to happen? <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> do you, um, what, what's your favorite place? What do you think of? What city do you think of when you think of tour? Um, I, Barcelona. Mm-hmm. Is, that kind of comes up pretty quickly. It just blew my mind. I didn't know enough about it before we got there. And I remember the first time we were there was Primavera Sounds, 2004, I think. Mm-hmm. It was like Wilco, Mudhoney, Pixies. I had no idea what I was doing in, in Spain and just like would walk around and try to go eat, rest, go eat lunch at 2 o'clock, you know, in the Gracia neighborhood. And it's like not going to happen. Like you're going to, you're going to have to go to like McDonald's or something. And I was like, yeah. I'm not going to go to McDonald's when I'm in Spain. I know enough to not do that. <laughs> and I remember just going into some tapas shop and trying to say like, can I get like something from here to eat? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. And then I get like chopped up hot dogs and mayonnaise, right. <laughs> you know, like, oh, okay, I guess this is cool. But then we, we went to this bar called Bar Marsaya. It's an absinthe bar and it doesn't open until like 1130 at night. And we were the first people in there and you get your absinthe and then you get an ice cube and then you get a little bottle of water to and a fork to put the ice, not the ice cube, I'm sorry, a sugar cube. Mm-hmm. You, you pour the water over the ice, uh, the sugar cube to dissolve it so that the it goes into the absence. So there's this little ritual and process. And I think I had two of those and I, I blacked out immediately. And I remember leaving and our tour manager called my tech. Like you have to come get your keyboard player. And this is very uncharacteristic for me. Like I would drink and you know, we would have a good time and, but I wouldn't, I'm not the party animal, you know, get blackout drunk more than a handful of times in my life and so but i do have these flashes of memories of that walk back to our hotel which was just right up the street like maybe a five ten minute walk but there are all of these uh prostitutes (laughs) that are outside of the bar that were like saw like oh american drunk confused person so they were like jumping on my bag and being like come on let's party and i'm like no no i can't do it and then on the way back to the hotel i was like i should probably eat something and again these are just like little flashes of 
moments that marked the trip back to the hotel. And I remember like I should eat something and then seeing like, you know, those uh, sandwich shops that have like the rafts of sandwiches like stacked up. It's like ham. And it's just like, you know, there's like 25 in a stack. And I remember going past it and I had enough presence of mind to say like, I saw those same sandwiches at noon today. Like I don't that I'm not going to eat those. And then we just got like some falafel or hero or something. And then, and then I tried to pee in the street and they were like, no, 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 don't, don't, don't do that. And you know, I like for me, that was an uncharacteristic moment, but um, I remember the next day feeling just like so incredibly awful and hungover and more of a social hangover, like feeling really bad about, what I had said or had done and made other people feel bad or uncomfortable. And that was, that was almost worse than the physical f- sensation of being tremendously hungover. Do you remember if it was this cosmic experience that people claim it to be? The thing that was, was striking to me about it in retrospect was that I really, we sat down, we got the first absinthe and then we ordered a second. And then that's where I don't remember. And mm-hmm. I think maybe we had a beer or two before we went there. So it wasn't like drinking a ton right. to yeah. get to that place. It was just like, it was so fast. Um, I, I don't know if they're humble brags. <laughs> so... In 2003, I think, Wilco was asked to play the Neil Young Bridge School Benefit. Have you ever done that? Yes. And listen, I grew up in New Jersey in the 80s. My dad was a recording engineer, and he worked with Bob James. So my musical reference points were super weird and have Mm -hmm. always been not sort of classic rock. My mom was a sort of very fundamental Christian woman, and I was not allowed to listen to heavy metal, but I didn't really want to. Like, it didn't it didn't appeal to me in the moment. But growing up with that religious perspective, (laughs) Wasp was We Are Satan's People. Kiss was Night in Satan Service. And do you remember 321 Contact, the science show on PBS in the 70s? Yeah. There was one episode where they went to a Kiss concert and mm-hmm. showed the behind the scenes, like how the show gets set up. And I remember I, it was terrifying to me. <laughs> <laughs> like watching them set up the lights and set up the, the mixing board and the, and the microphones and the stage and the lighting and everything. I was like, I would turn it off and I would go back to it and like, is this over yet? You know, so I, I have a really weird set of reference points for music. And so I, as a result... I didn't really know the nuance of Neil Young when we first went. I mean, I had, I was familiar with it, but not. I didn't really understand that it was rock music for adults. Like mm-hmm. it's a real, it's a profound expression. You know, I was like still a little bit snotty and, but also just sort of not informed. And, but to, and you've gone to his house then, right? Yeah, I got to go yeah. to his house. So or the I first... can brag about who I met there. Right. And I'm and that's what I'm about to do. <laughs> uh, but so so you get in these vans at the hotel in Silicon Valley and you drive up into the into the mountains and it's gorgeous and it 
it's like right around sunset so like every vista has like extra beauty and it's really magical and we get finally down you know his sort of legendary 17 mile driveway or whatever and we pull up and we walk up to his house and sitting at the patio table is david crosby graham nash and steven stills (laughs) Literally no. almost under the tree that the Deja Vu cover was shot. And so I was like, oh, okay, this is this is how this is going now. And then some disembodied hand puts a joint and you're smoking Neil's private reserve. And then, you know, I don't remember very much, but it was um, like just, it was so astonishing to walk in his house and like go to the bathroom and see all of the, the memorabilia or the culture that he made. And he's like, I mean, he's just wearing like Reeboks and acid wash jeans and a way oversized shirt. And I don't know, there's something, there's something so interesting and norm core about Neil. Mm-hmm. That was, that was a, that was an unforgettable moment to just like, oh, this is, this is what, this is what the, my life is going to be like for as long as I'm playing with Wilco, <laughs> at least. It's like yeah. rolling, rolling up and Crosby stills and Nash are on the porch. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I um I was just telling my wife about this last night, coincidentally. Um so you know the backstage area, right? Mhm. Mhm. So we had our room back there and Pearl Jam and Elton John had rooms back there too, you know? And Jeff Bridges was of course there. Why not? Yeah. And um I was just perusing around looking at all these rock and rollers and we're about to go on and I'm holding my sticks and I'm kind of warming up and I'm just kind of you know spaced out walking around looking and i look into jeff bridge's room and all i see is a big butt sitting on an ice chest and a little bit of a butt crack <laughs> and then and that back is facing me and jeff bridges is facing me and they're leaning in over a coffee table talking to each other that butt crack was elton john's butt crack wow he was just wearing sweats and just sat in on this thing and they were eating chips I st- I just froze and I was just like, then I just went like this with my sticks, like I was warming up and just stared at them. <laughs> just regular dudes having I, some chips, you know. That that to me is always the. I feel like that's one of those profound experiences that you kind of like that this lifestyle only provides is how just normal and regular all of these people uh, that we've idolized or you know, deified in our minds somehow. They're just like, yeah, just I'll wear some sweatpants and eat some chips. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I have one more. I just remembered one more yeah. humble, humble brag. So Wilco opened for REM for about two weeks on the West coast. And we finished the whole run at Red Rocks. So at the last show of the tour, they asked everybody who was playing to come out and join them on it's the end of the world as we know it. And so I, uh, I went out, I don't think I had played red rocks with Wilco yet. I mean, we had played that show, but I don't think we'd done it on our own steam before, but we've since subsequently played multiple times, which are facts that are insane to me mm-hmm. and, and wonderful, mm-hmm. but it's still like, it still sort of seems like a fever dream, but I remember sitting down on the at the piano, which was a Kurzweil MIDI controller in an upright piano shell, 
And I remember just playing along to It's the End of the World as We Know It. And and Michael Stipe came up and sat on top of the piano and was just like hanging out and like singing to me. <laughs> And then stood up on the piano and it just like got the crowd going and Mike Mills ran out into the crowd and I was like, this is my life. This is, I, I think I wanted this. I'm pretty sure that I wanted this, but sure. here we are. This is really, it's a remarkable moment. Well, hey, I was listening to um, the Expanders song, You Don't Know What Love Is. That's a killer song. Well, man, that's uh is it, I think it's a hundred years old or somewhere around there. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an old standard. Yeah. Uh, Gene Ray and Don. Oh, I forget. I forget that I'm trying to, but that's like they're Tim, Tim Pennelly guys. Yeah. It's really cool. Like, of course the sense or the way it starts. It's just beautiful. That's Thanks. a killer song. Yeah. Now we just, uh, that project's been really fun to start with, uh, the great American songbook, but in a way that I don't think I've heard before. Yeah. That, and that's, it's cool. That's all I want. Right. You know, just what's something that's new and unusual and striking yeah. something that's old. So, yeah. Well, it's been great to talk to you. Yeah. Likewise, man. Um, I, uh, I am not a very social socially outgoing person in the mm -hmm. context of rock festivals. Like mm -hmm. it feels like, I don't know if you have a similar experience where you're, you're just sort of like trying to just keep it together. So you don't look too much like an idiot in front of David Crosby or <laughs> whoever else might be eating dinner or like mashed potatoes at the, the catering tent, you know, I, Jack white or. Right. <laughs> uh, I think I've done uh, all sides, all sides of it. Like I, we realized I was sitting next to Bob Mould for the first time in some European thing, and I just was like, just freaked out on him. You did? Yeah. Was he cool about it? He was super nice about it. Yeah. I'm I mean, he also was the type of person that didn't allow, I mean, I didn't freak out on him, but I was. I didn't hold back. I was like, right. man, let's talk. Who's do? Nice. <laughs> Where do we start? No, no, <laughs> sit down, sir. I'll get yeah. you something else. Get him something else to eat. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, man. Yeah, man. Joe, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. And, you know, getting people to talk about themselves, not that hard, actually. Right? No, not people that are vain like you. I know. You know? Um, take it easy, man. Yeah, Joe, great to see you, man. Thanks so much. I hope to see you in a catering tent. I hope so. All right. Thanks, Joe. Bye. 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 the blues until you lost a love you've had to lose you don't know what love is and you don't know how 
lips hurt Until you've kissed and had to pay the cost Until you've flipped your heart and you Yeah. <laughs> 